If you want to take your Bible with me today, if you want to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're just joining us today, we're continuing our study uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the 35th message from the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the 8th message in the 15th chapter. But Lord willing, today we're going to finish up this 15th chapter and move forward toward the conclusion of this study by the end of, of this month. Um, if you haven't been with us, you want to go back and go through these messages because this is a church that was deeply troubled, a church that had a lot of problems, a church to which uh, the Apostle Paul is sending a letter because they had sent him a letter. Dear Paul, tell us what to do. And Paul sends the letter back. And in sending the letter back, he gives answers to these problems, to these issues. I just remind you that there are no perfect churches. If you're looking for a per perfect church, please don't join it because you will ruin it. <laughs> the reality is all of us are imperfect people. There are no perfect churches. If I join what I thought was the perfect church, I would ruin it as well. We all have our faults and we all have our flaws. There are no perfect churches. You look for a church where the Word of God is proclaimed, where it's taught, where the gospel is given consistently and regularly, where people's lives are being changed, where you're worshiping the Lord and you're fellowshipping with the body of believers and you're feeling connected to that body. Uh, where your, your soul is being fed from the Word of God, where you're able to plug in and serve and give yourself, and where you're excited to invite other people to come and to be a part and bring them under the sound of, of the gospel. All of these things are, are the reasons why you, you become a part of a local church and why you choose a church. It might be a small church. It might be a large church. Uh, when you get to heaven, everything's going to be different than it is today. Um, people say, well, I like a small church. Well, heaven's a big place. And then there's people that have, have you're in a big church, they, they want a small church, or they in a small church, they want a big church. You know, heaven's going to be a wonderful place. So it's not about the size of the church. It's not about uh, the activities they all have. They all have activities. The, the question is, is the word of God being proclaimed? Is the gospel going forth and people's lives being changed? Is there fellowship where I can grow and interact with other believers and mature in my faith? Uh, is there the kind of congregation uh, where I can serve, I can plug in, and where I can invite people, and I'm not embarrassed to invite them to come to church because I know my church is going to stand on the truth and our people are going to love people that come. And so this was a church that was troubled. This was a church that was struggling. And Paul is writing a letter back after having received his Dear Paul letter and giving them answers. And in the 15th chapter, he's dealing with the resurrection. There were those in the city of Corinth and in the church at Corinth, apparently, that denied that there was a resurrection. And in denying that there was a resurrection, in essence, they were denying that there was even the resurrection of Jesus. If there is no resurrection, then there is no resurrection of Jesus. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus, Christianity unravels. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is a central tenet to the Christian faith. It changes Christianity and makes it different to all of the other religions of the world. Every other religion worships and follows the tenets of some great leader from the past, but all of them are dead. You can still go to their graves and their bodies are still in those graves, but 
when you go to the grave where Jesus was buried, you realize that Jesus is very much alive, that Jesus is, in fact, not dead. And that changes everything, the resurrection of Jesus. So to deny the resurrection is to deny the resurrection of Jesus, and you have major problems when you do that. We might as well just disband, just go home, do something different on Sundays. If Jesus is not alive, you don't need to be teaching your children about eternity or about heaven or about the way of God or the will of God. You don't need to be doing any of those things if Jesus isn't alive. He was just a great leader. He was a moralistic teacher. He was a wonderful person, a historical figure, somebody that we might want to emulate, but he's certainly not the Savior because, I mean, whatever he did on the cross wasn't sufficient enough for him to be raised from the grave so that he could offer it to us. You understand how important the resurrection is? It is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. Could have been no resurrection without the death of Jesus, but with the death of Jesus and no resurrection, Christianity isn't complete. If you're arguing or talking to somebody that doesn't know Christ and they're atheistic in their beliefs, the answer to that person or the discussion with that person is, you know, I have decided to listen to the one who rose from the grave. I think the person who rises from the grave has something to say, and I ought to hear what he has to say. Whether you believe in him or not, I believe in him because he rose from the grave. That makes all the difference in the world. So today we're talking about resurrection, and today we're talking about your resurrection. We're talking about the resurrection of all believers in Jesus Christ that will come one day. And Paul is going to answer some questions in the, verse, the verses that we're going to look at about this resurrection. Now, it's important for you to understand as we begin this message um, that we can't read all of the verses that are here from verse 35 to verse 58 that's, uh, what, 24 verses. We can't read all of those verses here in this passage. I hope you'll go home and make sure you read them because what Paul's going to do is again and again, he's going to come back to reiterate the significance of the resurrection of the children of God and how it takes place and when it takes place and those kinds of matters. He's going to do it in different ways, but he's going to do it again and again as if to say, I want to make sure you get this. So let me say it this way. So that you don't miss this, let me say it this way. To make sure you've really gotten it, I'm going to say it this way. So he says it in different ways, but all of it, the gist of all of it is to say, it's because Jesus is alive that you're going to live one day. Your physical body is going to be resurrected from the grave one day. That is if you're a believer in Jesus. You're going to be resurrected one day to live with him in the new heaven and the new earth. And so that's what we're studying this morning. And if you're just coming to us uh, today and you're just joining with us in this study, uh, you've, you've missed a lot of things, but this stands on its own, and I hope that God will use it to speak to your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're talking today about something that's so valuable. I look across this room as I'm, I'm preaching today, and I see people that have laid to rest loved ones, most of us in this room, but some of the more recent have laid to rest loved ones. And we went to the graveside together and we wondered and we talked and we prayed together and we encouraged one another and we did so with the resurrection. I pray, Lord, that today you'll help us to see what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and by way of the Corinthians to all of us 
about the matter of the resurrection. And Lord, let us recognize it as our hope. I know there's some here that are young, thinking about mortality, thinking about life coming to an end, probably doesn't even speak to them at this moment because they're young enough that they haven't really lived long enough to realize that life isn't as long as they think it is. But Lord, most of us across this room recognize how short life is and even those that are too young to recognize it will recognize it one day. Believing in the resurrection and knowing and understanding the resurrection brings hope in the midst of our sorrow. So help us, Lord, today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My first funeral here at Lewis Memorial Baptist Church was in 1983. I became pastor December the 5th, 1982. And over those winter months, there wasn't a lot that went on. It was winter time. There was some snow that fell. It was my first real snow uh, to have to deal with coming from the deep south. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot that was going on over those winter months. But as the weather began to open up, the life of the church began to open up, obviously, more significantly as we were able to get out and get about and do things without the cumbersome coats and all of the wintertime gear that you have to have. The very first funeral that I had was in 1983. It was an elderly gentleman who was a member of this congregation a man who had been declining for some time, long before I got here, been declining in his health, and it fell to me to conduct his memorial service. It was that same year that I conducted the memorial service for a little girl named Jessica. Uh, she was seven years of age. She had been born with an illness, and ultimately she succumbed to the illness, and we had to go to the graveside and we had to bury that little body in that little casket. And I will tell you that all funerals are difficult and all funerals are hard, but none are as difficult or as hard as the funeral of a child. And any family that's ever had to later rest a child deserves an extra portion of grace from every person in their lives. The last funeral that I performed was last weekend. Uh, actually, uh, last Thursday, a week ago Thursday, I had a funeral for an elderly lady who was a member of our church who was dealing with dementia for a number of years, and she passed on to be with the Lord Jesus and her husband, who were already in heaven. And on Thursday, I was able to conduct her memorial service. I drove to the Shenandoah Valley and had a wedding on Friday for a beautiful couple that were united in marriage. And I drove back to be here on Saturday afternoon to conduct the funeral of a man who was a member of our church who had been for the last three years battling with ALS. And he passed into the Lord's presence at the age of 63. Between 1983 and 2023, I've conducted approximately 500 or so funerals. If you do the math on that, that averages out over those 40 years or so. It averages out to be about one per month. Funerals don't come that way. You don't schedule them. It's going to be, well, this month is this month, and I got one in February. I got one in March. I got, they don't work that way. They come in bunches usually, but it averages out to being about one funeral a month that I've done for the last, for the last 40 years. If you add to that the number of times that I've been to funeral visitations and to funeral services where I was not conducting the funerals, there's another three or four times as many as the funerals I've actually led in laying to rest a loved one 
who had passed. In other words, I have spent a significant portion of my life comforting people in a time of sorrow and a time of difficulty. It's what God called me to do, called all of our pastors to do. But it's what God called me to do and something that I'm pleased that God allows me the opportunity to be able to do so. But I cannot even begin to imagine what it would be like if I had to go to a funeral service and I had to minister to a family, whether I'm doing the service or not doing the service, and I had to stand before them and try to offer them some words of comfort or some words of hope, and I could not talk to them about the resurrection of their loved one one day from the grave. There is hope in recognizing that when we place the bodies of our loved ones in the ground, that that's not the end of their bodies forever. There is hope in knowing that one day from the grave will come forth all of our loved ones resurrected in a new and a glorified body, though different than the original body, a body that is fit for eternity to live with God forever in his new heaven and new earth. There is hope in that. Otherwise, you stand beside a grave and you look down into a hole and you feel as if death has won the victory and you have been defeated or your loved one has been defeated. But because you are trusting in the Lord Jesus as Savior, you have already been given the victory over that grave. And that grave is just a resting place for a temporary amount of time until God calls you out. And God gives you a glorified body and makes you like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about when you get to verse 35 to verse 58. He's talking about that resurrection. He's talking about that hope. And those who don't believe in the resurrection are people who are stealing, hear the words, they're stealing the hope from the hearts of people. When they say there is no resurrection, I feel sorry for my atheist and agnostic friends who believe that life is just a matter of chance and happenstance, just a matter of faith. It's just dumb luck. It's unfortunate that you got the illness. It's unfortunate that you're going to die from that illness. It's unfortunate that you left this world early. Nothing you can do about it. There's no purpose in it. There's no reason for it. There's no hope after it. You're just going to be in a grave. That's the end. Somebody might come, put some flowers every once in a while, and show you a little bit of respect, but you won't be there to know it. There is nobody there to know it, and that's how they think of life. That's how they think of death. But you realize that as we as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that when we take our loved ones to the graveside and we place their bodies in the grave, that one day there's going to be a glorious resurrection. One day they're going to come forth out of the grave. And Paul is going to drive it home again and again. And because there is about 24 verses here, we're not going to read them all. We're going to look at these verses centered around four particular points. We begin, first of all, with the point, God's power. You know, whenever you talk about the resurrection, there's always somebody who begins to question. What do you mean the resurrection? How do our bodies come out of the grave? Some people ask those questions in curiosity. They're just trying to understand. They're not asking in unbelief. They're just trying to grasp what it means, the resurrection, when you talk about the resurrection. But there are other people who are skeptical. It's the, oh, yeah, right, kind of a question. Well, how do these bodies come out of the grave? I mean, 
Think about that, would you, for a moment? And that's the kind of question I believe the Apostle Paul is dealing with as we open in verse 35. Notice it. But someone will say, now let's stop for a moment. You see the word someone? That connects us to verse 34. In the middle of verse 34, he says, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And that some connects us all the way back to chapter 15 and verse 12. And notice in the middle of verse 15, verse 12, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so he's not talking about the curious believer who just wants to try to understand what he means by the resurrection and try to understand what it's like for the resurrection. He's talking about somebody who doesn't believe in resurrection, somebody who doesn't have the knowledge of God, and somebody who is skeptically asking these questions. But someone will say, verse 35, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Those aren't curious questions. Those are skeptical questions. They're questions that go sort of like this. I don't get these questions frequently. Maybe some of our other pastors do. I don't get them frequently, but I've heard them on occasion. The resurrection, surely you don't really believe there's a resurrection. Think about that, pastor. Think about what you're saying. How could it be? How could it be that somebody whose body decays in a box could come forth out of that box and have a new body that's this, 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 uh, a different body than the body that was placed in that box. Or what about those people, Pastor, that were, that were cremated and their remains were taken and they were spread and they're all over the earth somewhere. They were spread where that loved one wanted their remains to be spread or maybe on the water. They were spread on the water. Where's that person's body going to come from? Or what about the person that's lost at sea and nobody even knows where he or she is and a body has never been found? What do you mean there's going to be a resurrection? You've got to be smarter than that, Pastor. And you have a man asking, someone asking this kind of question that Paul is going to give a response to. And the response comes back in verse 36. You'll, you'll notice he begins by saying, foolish one. To question whether there's going to be a resurrection because you can't understand it in its totality is to act in a foolish way fashion. Do you know what a fool is in the Bible? The fool is somebody who discounts God, somebody who denies God. The psalmist says that on a couple of occasions, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, this skeptic who's asking these questions about this matter of the resurrection body is saying to the apostle Paul, I'm discounting God. I'm denying any involvement of God in this process. I'm just asking you out of natural, out of the natural means of my understanding. Surely you can't believe in a resurrection. How could that be? I mean, there have been people that have lived over the thousands of years. How could God even remember where all of those bodies are? And the apostle Paul comes back and says, oh, foolish one. You have forgotten something so central and so important when it comes to this matter of the resurrection, and that is you have forgotten who or whom or about whom you are speaking. You have forgotten God. You have forgotten that he's the sovereign of the universe. You have forgotten that he's the omnipotent one. You have forgotten that he is the all-powerful one. You foolish one. 
As a matter of fact, you can look down a little bit further, verse 38, and you'll see how he winds up here. He says, but God gives it a body. In other words, just no problem. It doesn't matter where the remains have been spread. It doesn't matter if you can find the body or not. It doesn't matter that they have uh, decomposed in a, in a grave somewhere. Because God is the all-powerful God. God is the one who can do what you cannot do and what others cannot do. God can do anything. In other words, this is a foolish question because in asking the question, you're asking a question that denies God and denies the power of God. And he's in essence saying, this is a person who doesn't need to study more prophecy, and he doesn't need to study more biology, and he doesn't need to study more philosophy. What he needs to study is theology. The study of God, he needs to study his theology. Because if he knew God, he would know that there's, God can do anything. Think about it for a moment. We're talking about the God who spoke and everything came into existence. Now, I know that there are people amongst us that believe and beyond us that believe, who are Christians, who believe in an evolutionary theory. I think you're mistaken. I think you're wrong. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be mean or unkind. I don't care how scientific you are. When you begin looking at the evidence, the evidence is the same for everybody. The question is how you interpret the evidence. And do you realize that there are many, many science-minded Christians? There are many Christians who are scientists. I don't want to say Christian scientists. There are many Christians who are scientists who look at the same evidence and see it as the evidence for the creation of the almighty God. And besides, we're not talking about observational science. We're talking about historical science, something that you cannot repeat, something that you cannot test, something that you cannot observe. You have to take the word of the one who was there when it happened. And the one who was there when it happened was God. This is the God who spoke everything into existence out of ne nothing. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God spoke everything into existence. This is the God who reached down and took some of the dust of the earth that he had made, that he had made and he had fashioned, and he fashioned out of it the form of a man. And he breathed into that man, and that man became a living soul. This is the God that saw man was alone and said, it's not good that man should be alone. And he put him into a deep sleep. Those of you that are in the business of putting people to sleep, you're in the same business I'm in, you know, putting people to sleep. <laughs> God was the first one that had some kind of an anesthetic to put him to sleep. And he took from him a rib and he fashioned a woman and he brought the two of them together and the very first marriage took place. And Adam and Eve are the progenitors of all of humanity that lives to this day. God is the one who did that. God is the one who created the stars that are in the sky, those balls of sun that are like our sun, but they're just so distant from us, they're not as bright to us, and they light up the heavens in the night. God is the one who created the moon. God's the one who created all of the bodies of all of the different creatures that walk on this earth and are a part of this earth. What are you talking about? Can God raise up the dead? Well, I don't know where their body is. They're lost at sea. They've been spread on the ground somewhere. Hey, that's not a problem for God. 
That's just a problem for you. God's got no problem. You understand what he's doing here? A little bit later, you look down to verse 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. Then he looks to the heavenly skies. He talks about celestial bodies. He could be talking about me there, but probably not. He could be talking actually about angels. I hope you know I was kidding about that. Some of you didn't laugh. It worries me. There are also celestial bodies, could be talking about angels, but because of verse 41, he's likely talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars. They're celestial bodies, they're terrestrial, earthbound bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. By the way, we won't get time to talk about this, but there's an indicator that even in our glorified bodies, when we're resurrected from the grave, there'll be distinctions amongst them. What's he talking about? Why is he giving us all of this detail? He's not just merely bird-watching or stargazing in this passage. He's teaching us that the God who created plants and birds and fish and beasts and humans, who spoke the myriads of angels into existence, who made the sun and the moon and the stars and a septillion of their, of their galactic cousins, that's the God with whom there is absolutely no problem making a new body for you or making a new body for your loved one. Put it to rest. It's okay. You can't fully understand it. We're not talking about you. We're talking about God. And God can do anything. He is not limited in his power. Secondly, we want to talk about this passage not around God's power, but secondly, around God's plan. Okay, so if God can do this, that's what he's saying. If God can do this, if he can make bodies for animals that differ, by the way, he makes all these bodies different. I, I'm not a bird. I, I can stand on the edge of this platform and I can say, I'm going to fly to the back of the auditorium and I will fall flat on my face. I mean, he makes these bodies different. He's the one who created them the way they are. If God can do that, then God can take care of raising our loved ones. He can take care of where their DNA is and what he needs to make the new body. He can handle it. It sort of comes with being God, you know? But then he goes on to say, well, how's this gonna happen? And he talks about God's plan. He's gonna do it by changing our bodies. The resurrection, there's gonna be something different about the resurrected body than there is to the physical body that we have, uh, have today. There's going to be a difference though there's going to be some continuity to the body that we had before. In other words, we're going to come out of the grave with a glorified body, but it's going to be a body that looks like, in some fashion, the body that we had previously. We'll lose that part of us that's mortal in order to become immortal. Our temporary dying bodies will put on what is imperishable or deathless. Our earthbound, sin-corrupted bodies will be changed in order to exist in eternity with God. These bodies can't exist in eternity the way they are. God's got to change them. Notice verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown in corruption. That's the sick. 
That's the body that dies. That's the body that's diseased. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. That's the shame and the sin that we live with on a daily basis. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. That's our frailty. Whether it's our physical frailty or our spiritual frailty, it's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, a body that is subject to this world and limited by time and space, but it's raised a spiritual body. Hold on a minute. That doesn't mean you're going to be a ghost. It doesn't mean you're going to be a spirit just floating along. When he talks about a natural body and a physical body, he's talking about a natural body that's controlled by the appetites of nature. When he talks about a spiritual body, he's talking about a body that's controlled by the Spirit of God and the power of God. It's the kind of body that Jesus had. Jesus came forth out of the grave, not like a ghost or like a spirit. He came out of the grave with a what? With a body. He said, flesh and bone I have. He came out of the grave with a body. It's going to be a change. God's plan is to change our bodies. In Atlanta or just south of Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia is a, a place that my wife and I have visited many times over the years, not in recent years, but when we were younger, uh, Callaway Gardens. Any of you been to Callaway Gardens? Callaway Gardens is this beautiful expanse of property that's a preserved kind of piece of property, all the beautiful flowers, they're all manicured, it's, you pay to go in, and there's a beach there on a lake and they have skiing and they have all kinds of things for kids to do and it's all the fun stuff there's a chapel there's a bike trail I don't know how many miles I've ridden the entire bike trail a long time ago <laughs> ridden the entire bike trail on more than one occasion with Mary and others and our family and you come along on the bike trail you come to the butterfly center I assume it's still there. As I said, I hadn't been in many years. By the way, they have uh, three golf courses. I've played all three of those golf courses. Um, they have a, a butterfly center, and you go in, and you go into this area that's where the butterflies are, and there's butterflies. There's plants and all kinds of things, but there's butterflies everywhere. And you know butterflies don't fly in a straight line? It's like when you go to the mall. Nobody walks in a straight line. It's, it's traffic going every direction. It's like a Bucky's. It's crazy. And you, you go in the butterfly center and there's butterflies everywhere. You realize how those butterflies became butterflies? Now, I'm not a scientist and I'm not going to try to explain it in totality, but it starts with, well, it starts with an egg, but then it becomes a caterpillar. You know, you look at those caterpillars, you look at the fuzzy little caterpillar to try to figure out how long winter's going to be. But at some point, that caterpillar becomes a, a, is encased in a cocoon, a chrysalis, and inside it becomes, if you will, a soup. It eats itself in essence, and then eventually out of that cocoon emerges what? A butterfly. I mean, there's a transformation that takes place so that you could say, if you wanted to use this as an illustration, you could say about the butterfly that it was sown a butterfly and it was raised, excuse me, it was sown a caterpillar and it was raised a butterfly. 
I don't understand all of the differences, but I know that the body that we're going to have after the resurrection is going to be a body that has similarities to the body that we presently have, but it will be absent of all of the things that are mortal and all of the things that are weak and all of the things that are perishable and all of the things that are sinful. It will be a glorified body. Dr. John Phillips, who has preached here on a number of occasions and who has written numerous books, if you have them in your, your library, you're blessed. But he's preached here on numerous occasions, obviously prior to his going to heaven. He says in his book about this matter of the resurrection, he says, Paul avoids two pitfalls. He does not teach that the body raised is the exact corpse that was buried, although identity survives. You say, Pastor, I'm still trying to grasp it here. It's not that I don't believe it. I know there are skeptics who don't believe this, and they're the ones that they need to hear that they're foolish when they do that because they're discounting and denying the power of God himself. Don't do that, Christians. You might not understand it all, but your God is bigger than it all, and he can handle it all. The question is, what is God's plan? And God's plan is he's going to take the body that's planted in the grave like a caterpillar in a cocoon, and it's going to emerge as a butterfly. It's going to be a transformation that takes place. And though it's not the exact, exact corpse, the identity is going to survive. That means I'm going to know my wife or my husband. Some of you think, well, that was not something I was looking forward to. I know that. <laughs> You're going to know your kids. You're going to know your loved ones. You're going to come forth out of that grave different than you went in. Will you notice verse 47? He says, the first man was of the earth. That's Adam. He was made of dust. But the second man, that's Jesus. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who were made of dust. I mean, we're all just made of dust. You scratch us, we're made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. When we're glorified in that glorified body, we're going to be like the body of Jesus. The Bible repeatedly says that. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Do you get what he's saying? Do you follow what he's saying? And then he says it twice, verse 51 and verse 52. Just circle the phrase, we shall all be changed. Verse 52, we shall be changed. Circle the word all in the first one. All of us are going to be what, church? That's God's plan. I'm glad to be able to tell you that one day there'll be no more parents burying their infants or their children. There'll be no more husbands burying their wives or wives burying their husbands. There'll be no more children that are saying farewell to their parents and their grandparents. One day, bodies that are ravaged by cancer will be raised incorruptible, and brains that are tormented by Alzheimer's will be glorified. Hands that are crippled with arthritis will move to the glory of God, and feet that are feeble due to age will dance before the Lord, and sorrow and tears will be no more, and hurt and despair will be banished, and death, and death itself will finally be destroyed. It's already been defeated. 
It'll be destroyed in that day. In that day, never again will we suffer as victims of robberies or violent crimes. Never again will we have incurable addictions that devastate families. Never again will marriages be broken and children abused and families abandoned. Never again will we watch helplessly as society deteriorates around us. But instead, sin itself will be vanquished. And it'll be vanquished by the life and the immortality and the eternal righteousness that God will give us. He's going to change us. That's his plan. You're going to be, it's going to be continuity with who you are today, but there's going to be change as well. I'm going to recognize you. I don't know if that means those of you who have bald heads are going to have hair again. I don't know if that's what it means. But I know I'm going to know you, and you're going to know me, and I'm going to be able to spend all of eternity ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth, enjoying all that God planned and all that God purposed without the curse of sin. Can you imagine that first tea (laughs) on that first day? on the new earth. <laughs> Honey, we're going to have some fun. <laughs> in that day, in that day, the redeemed of all the angels will stand before the Lord declaring, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Because he is the one through his power who has changed us into these glorified bodies. You say, how do you, how do you, are you certain about this glorified body thing? Yeah, yeah, just listen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Or listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't fully know what we shall be, that change, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so you start asking the question, okay, if we're going to be like Jesus after the resurrection in that body that he was in, what does that mean? Well, if you're taking notes, if you're taking notes online, this is on your notes. First of all, we'll have physical bodies. You remember when the women came to the garden, they were going to finish the preparation, and they realized that Jesus was resurrected, and he revealed himself to them. It says they held him by what? His feet. They held him by his feet. Or remember when Jesus appears amongst the disciples and Thomas is doubting and he doesn't believe yet that Jesus has been resurrected? And what does he say to Thomas? He says, reach hither and touch my hands and the wounds that are in my hands. Put your hand in my side. He's physical. It'll be a physical body, though a glorified body. We'll have recognizable identities. Did you know that? I'll know Mary is Mary and Mary will know me is Fabio. (laughs) It's all hidden at this moment, but she'll know me that way then. We'll have recognizable identities. Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9. Have I mentioned that if you want to understand those verses, you ought to buy my book on the Revelation? 
Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, he says there'll be people from every nation, every tribe, every people on earth. How are you going to distinguish them if they don't have separate identities that are recognizable? We'll have natural appetites. Remember when Jesus was with the disciples after his resurrection and he asked the question, is there any food? And what do they say? Well, we got some, we got some fish and we got some bread. And he said, well, I want some. And he ate. There'll be some natural appetites. We'll have never-ending life. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 54 is about. We won't have these perishable bodies any longer. We'll have no desire for sin. That's what verse 57 is about. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have pain-free lives. Revelation 21.4, he'll wipe all tears from our face. There'll be no suffering or sorrow or separation or all of those things that we live with in this life that cause us pain. And finally, we'll have special qualities. Now, this is one I'm not going to go too far with because I don't know if these qualities were distinct to the body of Jesus because he is the son of God or whether these may be allowed even for us. But I remind you that when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with the the two disciples, and they were talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. He was able to withhold his identity until they began to break bread, and then he revealed himself, and they realized he's the resurrected Christ. Or the disciples were in a room with the door. It says specifically, the door was closed, and Jesus just appeared in the room. I mean, no window. It wasn't like a horror movie. He just appeared in the room. Or think about Acts chapter 1, verse 9, where he just ascends. I mean, he just levitates, just ascends. Nobody's holding him. You'd have to pick me up by both arms, and you'd have to, it'd have to have several angels picking me up by both arms, and he just, he rises. Is that something specific to the body of Jesus that maybe we won't have? I don't know. But I can tell you this. Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that God's power is to change us so that we have a body that's suited for the new heaven and the new earth. That brings me to say, thirdly, we want to talk about God's promise. Okay? If God's power can do this and God's plan is to change us, okay, when's this going to happen? Well, he makes a promise. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. You know what a mystery is? It's not like reading a mystery book. A mystery is something that had been previously un unknown, it had not been revealed, that has now been revealed. What had not been revealed? That there is going to be a church age, that there's going to be a rapture and a resurrection of this nature. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's good on the wall of a nursery, but that's not what he's talking about. Sleep is the word he uses for our loved ones who have passed away. Their bodies are there just sort of waiting for the alarm clock to go off. We shall not all sleep. Not everybody will be dead when Jesus comes. Some of us will be living. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, that's been measured. I don't know exactly what the number was, but that's been measured. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. When this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's God's promise. Here's God's promise. God's promise is as surely as I go to the graveside 500 or so times with families and later rest the bodies of their loved ones as surely as we put their body in the ground. Jesus is coming again. I don't know if you watch the Middle East. I'm not here to predict anything. I think people who try to predict the timing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ are nuts. They're crazy. But I can tell you, you can look at things in the Middle East and you can recognize how easily they could turn into exactly what the Scripture is talking about. And before the Middle East becomes the total mess that it will ultimately be in the tribulation period, we will have already been snatched out of this world in what we term the rapture. The Greek word means to snatch away. We call it the rapture. We'll already be snatched out of this world. The living transformed into his presence and the dead raised first. That's God's promise. Uh, Maybe I'm a little bit morbid, but I live a long way from my family, so I get Google Earth every once in a while, and I go look at the cemetery where my parents are. It's an older picture. It's not a recent picture. I understand that. But I look at that little section where my mom and my daddy's bodies are buried. Then I go out to McDonough, to that family cemetery where Mary's mother and daddy and family are buried. And I zoom down with Google Earth to look and to see. I got news for you, friends. One day, all of my family members and all of yours that knew the Lord Jesus Christ are going to answer the call from sleep, and they're going to get up out of the graves. And if their bodies have been strewn somewhere or they've been lost at sea, it's, it's no problem. It's no problem for the Almighty God. It's a problem for us. We can't do that. It's not a problem for the Almighty God. The Almighty God can handle it, and he promises he's coming. Listen to me. If you've laid to rest a loved one, and you go every Memorial Day, and you put flowers on the, on the graves of your loved ones, first of all, thank you for remembering your loved ones. I figure when I'm buried, nobody will ever, ever even cut. Probably won't even cut the, gr- the grass around my headstone. Thank you for going. Thank you for remembering your loved ones. Thank you for helping your children and your grandchildren remember your loved ones. But I got good news for you. Jesus is coming. And we're all gone that are living and the, re- and the dead are resurrected from the grave. Hey, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Maybe you're not. I'm okay with that. If he comes today, I don't have to go back to a cemetery and I don't have to go back to a funeral home and I don't have to grieve ever again. But that brings me to say, fourthly, God's power, God's plan, God's promise. What is God's purpose for revealing this? Why why does God want us to know about this resurrection? Why does God want us to know about this resurrection? Verse 58. Therefore, anytime you see therefore, you ask what it's there for. It's an explanation of what all's gone before in those 23 or four verses prior. Therefore, my beloved brethren, he's talking to the living. 
You've buried your loved ones. You're waiting on the resurrection day for Jesus to come. Therefore, my beloved brethren, number one, be steadfast. To be steadfast means to be fixed. It means to be determined, to be purposed, to be faithful. He goes on. He said immovable. Immovable means unyielding and unshaken and undisturbed. Then he says always, always. It means never ceasing, never stopping, never quitting. Always abounding in the, here's the, here's the fourth word, work, work of the Lord. It's the Greek word that refers to the labor where, where you're sweating from the toil in which you're involved. It's a picture of a runner who's raced this long race and he's stretched out just trying to cross the finish line before anybody else crosses it. The work of God is work. Say, so I'm, looking, I'm looking to play church. Well, you're in the wrong place. There are a lot of churches playing church. You're in the wrong place. We're here to work. And he says, because there's a resurrection day, because God's power is going to change the bodies of our loved ones, and that's his promise to us. His purpose for us is to get busy, get with it, go for it, go all in. Stop playing games. This is serious business. The reason he tells us about all these things is to encourage us to stand firm in the faith, never wavering in our convictions, and to motivate us to get busy tirelessly serving in the work of the Lord. Most people can't serve tirelessly in the work of the Lord because they're tirelessly doing other things. I'm talking about beyond making a living. God's purpose is to remind us there is something coming after. And what you do today matters in that day. Because you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not as to determine as to whether you're going to go to heaven or not, but to determine whether your works will be rewarded or not. And some won't have works to present and some will have pitiful works to present. Some of us will be like me probably that'll have works we thought were worthy and they weren't. But some will present those works and they'll be judged and they'll be rewarded for those works and that'll make a difference. That'll make a difference. Not in eternity, whether you go into eternity, but in how you serve in eternity. Today matters. Do you get my point? Does anybody get my point? You say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to get in by the skin of my teeth. I'm going to live like I want to live and have a big time here and just enjoy life and live it up. And by the way, you should enjoy life. There's a lot of good things in life to enjoy. But you can't give everything to a party. There's work to be done. The work of God is here to be done. And there is a day that God's going to resurrect us from the grave. And it matters what we do today for tomorrow. It matters what we do today for tomorrow. Let me finish with this. There's a pastor I know. I don't know him personally, but I, I've heard him speak and I've read some of his writings. And he tells about a story when he was nine or ten years old and his parents picked him up early from baseball practice in order to go to the Wednesday night church service. Well, the coach's rule was that if you left practice early, you didn't get to start the game on the weekend. He said when he got in the car, he complained like children normally would do when parents are asking them to do something that 
they don't want to do. But his mother stopped him, and she began to recall all the goodness of God that had been poured out on their family. He said it was like a prophetic history lesson that Moses or Joshua would have often recounted to Israel. He said after her powerful words, she concluded by saying to him, you may have forgotten all the Lord has done for us, but your daddy and I haven't forgotten. And if you think you're going to put a ball practice ahead of serving the Lord, then you've lost your mind. (laughs) May her tribe increase. That's my mama, by the way. She didn't say those things, but that's my mama. May her tribe of parents increase. May her tribe increase. In other words, that day in the past when Jesus saved you from your sins and that day in the future when Jesus will raise the bodies of his children from the grave ought to have an impact on this day in the present. And because you know there's going to be a resurrection day, you ought to get busy doing something in the work of God. So let me finish. Did I say that a few minutes ago? That's coming three more times. In light of coming resurrection, let me ask you some questions. When are you going to receive Christ as your Savior? Why are you putting this off? Why are you waiting? Do you realize your heart can stop beating in a moment? I have buried young men and young women and old men and old women. I've buried those that were children and teenagers. And besides, it's not just death. If Jesus comes first, you'll be left. When are you going to receive Christ as your Savior? This is the moment. God's speaking to you. He's tugging at your heart at this moment. He's calling you to himself. He's saying, trust me as your Savior. Trust me as your Savior. He's calling you at this moment. Number two, what are you going to do? What are you doing to serve him through his church? What are you doing to serve him through his church? We all have different abilities and different talents, and we have different points in our lives when we're at different age points in life, some things that I used to do, I can't do anymore. But everybody has something to do in the work of the church. Everybody has something to do. What are you doing to serve him through his church? Number three, who are you talking to about the gospel? Who are you talking to about the gospel? You're right now, you're, you're talking to them. Every day you have opportunity, you're telling them about what Jesus has done for you and how Jesus has changed you and how the gospel can change them. Number four, why are you waiting to be baptized? Why are you waiting? Jesus didn't wait to come for you. Jesus came for you. Why are you waiting to step up and say, I declare my allegiance to Jesus and that I believe he died for my sins, was buried and rose again? Number five, when are you going to get in a life group? When are you going to get in a life group? 
You say, Pastor, I just come to sit in the rows of the pews so that you'll have faces to preach to. Well, I'm not about faces to preach to. I'm about people becoming more like Jesus, living and loving like Jesus every day. When are you going to get in a life group? Well, I can't find the perfect one. Well, come join mine. We are the perfect one. (laughs) There are no perfect life groups. And for everybody who says, well, I don't have one where I fit. I don't fit in that life group. I don't fit in that life group. Oh, get over yourself. (laughs) Then get trained and start a life group where you can have people that fit like you. Amen? And finally, number six, how is your life different today because of Jesus? How is your life different today because of Jesus? You still going to the bars? You still showing up at the parties where you shouldn't be? You still hanging out in the dives where you know Christians ought not to be going? You still dressing? like the secular world around you, acting and talking like and being like the world that's around you? Or do people actually sit up and say, you know, you know there, there is something different. I don't think you're trying to be better than me, but there's something distinct about you. Dear friends, it's a resurrection day that's coming. And because of that resurrection, he says that we're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, listen, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.